we are in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, we have been in a series, uh, Identity, Who We Are in Christ. And uh, tonight we take from Romans chapter 12 as we look at this next aspect of who we are in Jesus. Romans chapter 12. Let me give you a brief overview, all right, of the context. In Paul's letters, oftentimes, in fact, not oftentimes, in every one of his letters, what, what he does is he, he lays out doctrine in the first half of the book, the epistle, and then he explains the practicalities of it, how it's fleshed out in life in the second or in the latter half of the book. Uh, Romans here, um, in this particular section, the, the key idea is relationships, and the idea is that if we have a right relationship with God, then we ought to have a right relationship with others because of Jesus, right? Especially the body of Jesus Christ. And so in verse number 1 of chapter 12, Paul urges believers and followers of Jesus to, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, right? Total commitment is our reasonable service. If Jesus died for us, the least we can do is serve him. In verse number 2, Paul urges us not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. When we come into God's family, we should abandon the thought patterns and the lifestyles of this world. We should think God's way. We should think as God thinks, as revealed in the Bible. So that brings us to verse number three. Our text is verse three down to verse number eight. Let's read it. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according, according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that we can gather here together tonight as a local body of Jesus Christ. Thank you for each one who has come. Teach us now. May your Holy Spirit guide us through this passage. I pray that you'll help me uh, to clearly articulate your word. May, may your word be uh, applicable to our lives. May we understand its truths and may we then live them out. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a believer in Christ, you are more than you think you are. You're more than you think you are. Who you are in Christ is really who you are. Uh, when I was a boy, uh, reruns of The Lone Ranger were on television. How many of you got to see the original run, you know, airing of the Lone Ranger, right? So here's this mysterious masked man, and uh, he, along with his faithful sidekick, Tonto, and his uh, powerful steed, Silver. Silver. Hi-ho, Silver, right? Is that ringing in your ears, right? They, they stood up for justice in the Old West. Well, Lone Ranger has come to 
describes someone who acts alone. Someone who lives alone. And as we continue this series tonight, we need to recognize that in Christ there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. In fact, God is clear in Romans chapter 12. There are other parallel passages. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we as Christians are not simply individuals, but we are part of a body. And tonight, in Christ, we're looking at this truth. I am a member of the body. So, what does this tell us? Our identity is not simply about us. My identity in Jesus is not simply about me. If we're going to think rightly about who we are, then we need to understand that God has made us a part of something much bigger than ourselves. That is, the church body, and he has given us abilities, and he's given us responsibilities as we live together and work together in this body. We are better together. That means that we need to be together, and that means that we need to serve together. And if we aren't together, we aren't living up to who God intended for us to be. If we only think of ourselves as individuals, if we only think of ourselves individually, we are missing a key aspect of our identity in Christ. And so look how Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 12. Before Paul tells us how to live, he's telling us how to think about ourselves. And so the first thing that he tells us here is that we need to think carefully. We're to think carefully about how we think about ourselves. He says in verse number three, for by, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Truth is, we all think about ourselves in probably more than we care to admit. The question is how do we think about ourselves? What do we think about ourselves? Wrong thinking about ourselves is not an isolated problem. In fact, Paul is addressing it here in the first century church. And Paul gives us here two specific dangers in how we think about ourselves. First of all, he says, be careful not to, th- not to overestimate yourself in your thinking. Don't overestimate yourself in your thinking. And Paul stresses here that we're to avoid thinking of ourselves in a way that overrates ourselves. We shouldn't have an exaggerated opinion of ourselves. He says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself, what does he say? More highly than he should think. And so perhaps he puts this first danger, this danger first, because this is the more more common of the two. Teenagers do this, right? Do you remember when you were a teenager? I know, I'm too old to remember back that far. No, I'm not really. Uh, remember how we thought when we were a teenager, right? I mean, our parents, they didn't know what they were talking about. I'm 15, man. I got all the answers. I, I know the way this is all supposed to work. 
But it's a larger problem than the stereotypical mindset that we, you know, we push off on teenagers. It really affects everyone from children to the elderly. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that is simply a cognitive bias in which people wrongfully estimate, overestimate their knowledge or ability in a specific area. And studies show this. Studies show that the majority of us rank ourselves higher than average when it comes to our skills, when it comes to our health, when it comes to our ethics. You see, we are, more, we are less likely to get sick than other people. How many are with me on that? No? You're more sick? Okay, all right. Let's honest ones. We're, we're not as likely to be sick as other people out there. We think we're more honest than the average person. We think that we're more benevolent than the average person. According to Dr. David Dunning of Cornell University, people don't only tend to overrate themselves, but more than that, they believe they are better and smarter than other people. A recent survey found 94% of professors rated themselves as better than the average professor. 94%, that's way above averages, right? 93% of drivers rate themselves as better than the average driver. Again, way above the average. But if we were to take a survey on your way in here tonight, and we would say, you know, are you better than the average driver? How many of you are saying, oh, yeah. I mean, all these other morons out there zipping in and out, but if I'm zipping in and out, I got somewhere to go and I can handle it, right? I mean, isn't this how we think? This is how we think. I got, I got stopped for speeding. We were going up to Vegas. This is several months ago. I got stopped for speeding, and, and I was just passing somebody. It's out in the middle of, you know, 93 going to Vegas. You're in the middle of nowhere, and there's like 60 trucks lined up. Have, have you been on this? You know what I'm talking about? There's 60 trucks lined up, and you finally get the extra lane. And so what do you do? All you good drivers, what do you do? You punch it, right? And you pass all those trucks. That's what I did. But the state trooper didn't agree. She didn't think I was. She's like, you need to follow, you know, further back from those trucks. If they had a blowout, I'm like, lady, I can do this. This is how we think. I was way overrating myself, according to Miss State Trooper. Uh, Believe it or not, We believe that we are not biased at all in our opinion of ourselves. (laughs) Most of us think when asked that we are more likely than others to provide an accurate self-assessment. In other words, we are all tempted to think a lot about ourselves, and when we think about ourselves, we think really well of ourselves. We think nice things about ourselves, and we tend to play this narrative in our head that we're the hero that saves, you know, the, the rest of the world. We're, we're, the, we're the hero who, who comes to the, the rescue of humanity, falling, you know, the rest of humanity is falling off this cliff because of their foolishness, and we're coming to, to save the day. The, the truth of the matter is, is we, as human beings, we are in danger of becoming egoholics. Egoholics. Maybe we think we're better because of some success we've had. Maybe it's because of our family name or our position in society, our experiences, our appearance, our talents, our abilities, our our education, our influence, our wealth. 
or because of how many so, uh, followers we have on social media. As I look around the room, that's none of us, right? But we tend to think of ourselves, people with a lot of followers, man, they, they right, think better than the average person. The problem goes back to the first century. And Paul says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly. Paul uses a couple different Greek words here, all with the same root. Phreneo. I tell everyone among you not to think, phreneo, of himself more highly, hyper, phreneo, okay, hyper, like high, more, more than you should think. Instead, think sensibly. That's sophroneo, and that's a term used in the Greek that is used in contrast to hybris or, or pride. And C.S. Lewis says, make no mistake about it, pride is the great sin, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites, he says, in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. It is the devil's most effective and destructive tool. And you know, the Bible is just rich with illustrations of this, isn't it? I mean, you think of Haman, you think of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, one great illustration of this in the Old Testament is King Uzziah. He becomes the king of Judah at age 16, and he sets his heart to seek the Lord, and, and God gave him this great wealth, and he became politically and militarily powerful, right? I mean, his fame spread abroad, and through all of that, his heart began to change. And he began to think upon his own strength. And it says when he was strong, he grew proud. And what it tells us in 2 Chronicles 16 is that, that, or 26 rather, is that Uzziah begins to think of himself more highly than he should have. And he develops this exaggerated sense of his own importance and abilities. And when he did that, he stopped seeking the Lord which suggests a lessening dependence on God and a growing reliance on himself and his own strength and his own wisdom. I'd encourage you to meditate. Go, go and read Second Chronicles 26. Meditate on Uzziah's story. Read about Haman. Read about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4 because these illustrations offer some very valuable insights. They're certainly worth reading. And here's what we find. That history at every point shows how easy it is for pride to increase when we become stronger and stronger. When we become more successful. When we become more prosperous. When we become more recognized in our endeavors. C.S. Lewis observed, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. You see why pride is destructive? If we have an overestimation of ourselves and we become proud, how that would hinder the body of Christ? Paul talks about the second danger in our thinking of ourselves and that he says that we should be careful not to underestimate ourselves. He says at the end of verse 3, instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. The word sensibly there, as I mentioned, is, the, is a Greek word that in Greek, in the Greek world, it was used 
as, to, to, as for the opposite of pride. What is that? That's humility, right? Well, what does humility look like in thinking about ourselves? Think about that. What does humility look like when thinking about ourselves? If we're not careful, we'll actually miss humility and end up with just flat wrong thinking, underestimating our true value in Christ, what God has given us in Christ. Thinking like this, I'm useless. I'm useless. God can't use me. I don't have this particular gift. I don't have this particular personality. I'm not an upfront kind of a person. I'm an introvert, right? And we can begin thinking with this wrong thinking, underestimating ourselves, not seeing ourselves for truly who we are in Christ. I've got nothing to offer. I always mess up. You ever said that before? Ah, I just always mess up. Things never work out for me. Ever say that before? We can fall into the trap of thinking about our perceived identity, how we think other people think about us. We can spend our time focused on what we perceive people think about us, when in actuality, studies show that people don't actually think about us at all. Why? Because people are thinking of who? Themselves. If you worry yourself, oh, I don't know what... They're not thinking about you. They're not. They're thinking about themselves. But what, here's what happens. We, we begin thinking, the, we begin imagining, right, what people think, and we begin judging ourselves or, or, or valuing ourselves how we perceive other people do not value us. And what Paul is simply saying is, look, we need to think soberly and sensibly and soundly about who we are in Christ. C.S. Lewis again says, true humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. I think there's, there's some truth to that. We can spend a lot of our time thinking less about ourselves, but we only end up thinking a lot about ourselves. Does that make sense? The problem of pride doesn't boil down to whether we think high thoughts or low thoughts about ourselves. It's really the fact that we think lots about ourselves. When humility is fundamentally a form of self-forgetfulness is what it is. It's opposed to pride's self-fixation. What's the solution? It's to think of ourselves in connection with the truth of the gospel. It's to think of ourselves in connection with the faith, who we are in Christ. This is where Paul leads us. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to every one. God has given specific gifts or abilities that are measured out to us, proportioned out to us. No, we're not going to be like someone else, so we don't need to compare ourselves to anyone one else but the bottom line is we need to think carefully about ourselves not overestimating and not underestimating secondly paul says that we need to think collectively look at verse verses four and five verses four and five now as we have many parts in one body okay paul there is talking about our human bodies 
and all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So right thinking about ourselves includes a right thinking about one another, a right thinking about our place in the body of Christ. And Paul's making this comparison. The body of Christ, the church, is like a human body. So listen, if you want a really good course in ecclesiology, the study of the church, Here's what you do. Before you jump in the shower tomorrow, stand in front of the mirror with nothing on. All right? Just bear with this for a minute. Okay? Why? Because look what Paul says here. Paul says, this is what the church is like. Stand in front of the mirror and take a good look. And the first thing that you're going to notice is that there's one body, not two. If you're seeing things in the mirror that aren't in the room, tell your wife and She'll get you a prescription or something. There's just one body, right? Just one. That's all we have. Even if you have a split personality, like maybe some of us do, I probably do. It's, we've only got one body. So, so let me give you some thoughts here. Number one, we are one body in Christ. That's what he says very frankly in verse number five. Very clearly, we who are many are one body in Christ. So when Paul speaks of the church as a body, he moves back and forth between these two meanings that overlap. The two meanings of the church. For on one hand, you have the universal or the invisible church. That is every believer in Christ that has ever lived. The other meaning of this is each local church as the body of Christ. And I don't think here that Paul wants us to draw a hard line. I don't think that he wants to say here that we're only talking about the universal church, you know, of all believers uh, and not our local church. I think he's referring perhaps to both. I think what he's saying here is he's referring to a local church. He's writing to a local church, but in the larger sense, he is part of them. He is part of the body of Christ. And he says, we are one body in Christ. Do you see it there? In Christ. And that means that we are, our interwoven unity, this interwoven unity of all the members into one body is created, it is brought about by Jesus himself. And one of the simplest ways that, that we can say what this means is that each of us is in a relationship with Jesus. Are you in a relationship with Jesus? And therefore, we are in a relationship with one another. So if I am a Christian's brother, excuse me, if I am Christ's brother, then you are my brother or sister. So by creating relationships with himself, Christ creates this relationship in the body. The second thing is you stand in front of the mirror that you're going to notice as you examine your body in the mirror is that your body has many members and that these members are not all identical, right? It's not just a torso. Thank God for that, right? There's two eyes, there's two ears, there's a, there's a nose, there's a mouth, there's 32 teeth. If you're an adult, still have them all. Do a little head count, check, make sure you got them all. A tongue, some arms, some hands, some fingers, and we'll just keep this PG. There's legs and there's feet and there's toes. And there's a lot of organs that you don't see. Not all the members are visible, and yet they are all absolutely necessary. You can live without a leg, I guess. I wouldn't want to. 
but you could, but I don't recommend trying to live without your lungs. I don't think you can. I mean, you'd have to carry around some pretty big apparatus for that to work. In other words, just because you can't see one part of your body doesn't mean that it has less value. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we have many members in the, in the body. We who are many. The body of Christ is collectively comprised of many members who are individually belonging to Christ. Paul writes in Romans, in, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians 2, and Peter writes about in 1 Peter 2, that collectively we are God's dwelling place. We're living stones, and, and as living stones, we make up the, the temple of God, the living temple of God, like that Old Testament temple, right? Old, Old Testament, the, the temple that, in which God indwelled, and the people would come, and they would worship God there. Well, today, we are together. We are living stones, and we comprise the temple of God. God dwells inside of us, and that means that collectively we represent Jesus. We are his body here on this earth. We are his hands and his feet. And so the body, it's one body, but it has many members. And then each member, each member, the third one there, sorry, you were changing it at the same time I was changing it. Each, uh, in Christ's body, each member is a member of all the others. Paul says this, verse 5, individually members one of another. So when it comes to our human bodies, we understand this. The various members and organs, they're what? They're interconnected, and they're interdependent, right? The feet depend on the legs. The legs depend on the hips, and the hips depend on the spine, right? It's all connected, and they're all interdependent, have you seen uh, the Adams Family, right? Have you seen this new show? It's not new now, but Wednesday. How many of you seen Wednesday? You know, you, you know what I'm talking about, all right? Uh, yeah, Brianna was watching it, and I saw some of it. And in, inside, in the, in the Adams Family on Wednesday, there's this thing called Thing, and it's a hand. You know what I'm talking about? And the hand just kind of walks around and does the bidding of Wednesday, I guess, right? Do... I'm checking with the source over there, okay? So, so the thing does the bidding of Wednesday, the girl, the, the daughter of, of, I don't know their names, but Mr. and Mrs. Adams, we'll call them. I don't, I don't remember their names. But, but, you, but you know what I'm saying, right? Hand, just walking around. And it's the, it's the creepiest thing you've ever seen. But we all know. Not, we, nobody's sitting there thinking, wow, that's amazing. No, you, th- there was some CG, there was something going, they... There's, they, this is all just smoke and mirrors, right? From what I understand, some guy's wearing a, a, a sleeve, a green sleeve on his arm, right? No way, no living hand is going to run around and do your biddings. I mean, mothers, if this were the case, how many would you have? Right? Never have enough hands as a mother, right? I mean, give me 10 of them. How much more work we can get around that? You have somebody over there vacuuming and somebody over there sweeping and someone over there, you know, making the beds and dusting. I mean, wouldn't that be nice, moms? But we know that is an impossibility. Why? Because hands don't operate without a body. You got to have a head. You got to have a brain. 
You got to have some arms and, and, and you have to have a support system around that. A hand without a body is useless. My hands are members of all the other members of my body and collectively they belong to one another. If you punch me in the nose, all the other members are going to respond. Right? You don't have to send out an email. You don't have to like, you know, hey, feet, let's get out of here. You don't have to, you don't, it just automatically happens. The body works together and responds. And so too, we as individual believers, we're to see ourselves this way. We're to see that we are connected to one another, that we belong to one another. And when we do so, we really do so, we will see that we need to care for one another. We'll see that we're dependent on one another and that we need to honor and respect every member of the body. Well, as we're thinking collectively, we also need to recognize this, that that each member of the body has a unique purpose and function. And Paul says this in verse 4, all the members do not have the same function. We understand that. Right? The ears aren't for seeing. The eyes aren't for doing what the teeth do. The teeth don't do what the feet do. We get that. Every part has a purpose. Every part is uniquely designed for its purpose. So every member is different from the other members, and wouldn't you agree? That's a good thing. Can you imagine if every part of your body looked like a hand? You know what I mean? I don't know how you'd see out of that. I, don't, I mean, that was, if your hand was your tongue as well, I mean, your hand was your, I, I know that we could walk on our feet, but I prefer to walk, walk excuse me, we, we could walk on our hands, but I would prefer to walk on my feet, wouldn't you? Okay, right? So our ears are designed in a specific way for the specific function of catching sound waves. I, I understand you don't need a biology lesson tonight, but Paul's using this biology lesson to, to help us re- understand, to recognize who we are in Jesus, who we are in the body of Christ. That while we're unique, everyone has a purpose. What I want you to know tonight is your part in the body is critical. Paul says this in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body, it's not for that reason any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. The reason we get this idea that I don't, I'm not needed in the church thinking, it's often because we have a wrong idea of what the work of the church is. I'm afraid that sometimes we think the real work of the church is just simply gathering together. This is part of what the church does, but this is not the real work of the church. We, we learn the scriptures, we come together and we sing together. We're taught, we're equipped, but for what? The work of the, the, of the church, the gathering, is to equip us to go out there and do the work of the church. But sometimes we think of the gathering, the service, 
we, if you want to call it that, as what the church does. This is the work of the church. Look, there's work that happens when we gather, right? Somebody has to teach the kids. Somebody has to run that stuff back there. And there's folks who, who practice and, and sing. There's messages that are prepared. And somebody broke up the crackers and, and, and poured the, the juice. Yeah, there's some work that has to be done, yes. But we need to understand that we don't gather to fulfill the work of the church. We, get, we gather to get ready to do the work of the church, the ministry of the church out there. We need to see it that way. We need to recognize it that way. And when you recognize that, you'll recognize that your part in the body is essential, that your part in the body is beneficial. It is special. Says, Paul writes in Corinthians, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. God has arranged the body. He is, I believe that, that every local church has whatever gifting it is needed to carry out the function of that church that God would like to see it fill out at that given moment. I believe, that's, that's a belief. You could, you could argue with me with that and I'd probably say uncle and let you win. But, but, I, but I have this belief that, that God provides for his work. Wherever, whatever he calls us to do, he provides for it. And the problem isn't that the gifting isn't in the church. The problem is that we don't use our gifting. We depend on someone else to take up the slack. And so we just don't, we don't operate. We don't, we don't recognize our value in the body, but I want you to know that your place, and by your place, I look around the room and I mean every single one of us. That your place is special because God is the one who chose you and put you in the body. And that he has a function, he has a purpose for you. Purpose for you. And that brings us to the third point. Paul says that Okay, you need to think carefully. You need to think collectively. And here he says in verses 6 through 8 that we need to think collaboratively. He says in verses 6 through 8, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, he, he lists some gifts. This isn't a complete list. Uh, if prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. So, when each member of the body functions within its ability, every member benefits from it, right? You think about that with your human body, right? When your body takes you into the kitchen and prepares a meal, right, and you sit down and your hands do all that work and your feet, you're moving around the kitchen, right, and, and everything's working together, and when you sit down and you shovel that food into your face and those teeth man they do their work and the tongue's like yeah you know and, and your brain is you know all this dopamine's going out like this is great man give me three more pieces of pie i'll take it right i mean it, all of that work that's going on in there boy the the whole body benefits from i don't know about the pie but but the good food the nourishment so it is in the body of Christ. And Paul gives us this list. He, he mentions some gifts. If you want to find other lists, uh, for, go to 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. You can study those out. I'm just going to talk about these for now. 
but he breaks them down into two gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. So the first speaking gift he mentions is prophecy. Prophecy. Uh, I believe this to be just simply declaring the divine will, interpreting the, the purposes of God, making known the truth of God. And Paul says, if prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. What is he saying? If you have the gift, use it. Use it. And he says there, according to the proportion of one's faith, he's already mentioned that in the end of verse number three. So perhaps what he's saying is, is if you have the gift of prophecy, don't overestimate it. Don't underestimate it. But use it. He mentions a second speaking gift, teaching. Uh, teaching is the analysis and proclamation of God's word. It's explaining the meaning and context and application of the word of God to the hearer's life. This is not just merely Bible study. It goes beyond that, but it includes that. It includes that. It includes any teaching of the Word of God. It could be in a formal setting. It could be in an informal setting. He says, if teaching, then use your gift in teaching. Exhorting. Exhorting is calling on others to heed and follow God's truth. Uh, which may involve correction or building up others by the strengthening of the weak, those weak in the faith, or comforting those who are going through trials. Paul says if you have this gift of exhortation, exhorting, calling others to the truth, use it, exercise that gift, if if exhorting in exhortation. Then he gives some serving gifts, Uh, The first one is simply here translated service. It's also translated in other translations as ministry and involves serving of really any kind. It's a broad application of practical help to those in need. In chapter 16 and verse 15, if you turn over a couple pages, we find that those in the house of Stephanus, they were known for ministering to the needs of the saints, their material needs of the saints. And Paul says, if service, use it in service. And perhaps no gift, there's no gift so liable to lapse into haphazard exercise than this Christ-like gift. Sometimes we, we get tired of serving. Sometimes we, folks with the gift of service, wonder, why isn't anybody else serving? You know, why does it seem like I'm the only one doing it? And Paul says, if you have the gift of service... Serve. Serve, whether anybody's serving with you or not. Now, now, if we all exercise our gifts, then there's going to be more than one with service. And sometimes uh, we exercise service in other roles with other gifts as well. But for some, it's very, very uh, exclusive here with this, this ministry, and, and perhaps that is your heart. Uh, there's the, the gift of giving next. This is a serving gift. Uh, That's sharing with others, whether it's financial, material, or giving a personal time and attention. And the giver is concerned for those uh, uh, needs of others and look for opportunities to actually help meet those needs. Giving. Do you have that gift? Well, he says, then, if you have the gift of giving, then give and do so generously. Generously. The gift of leading. This literally means guiding. It carries the idea of one who steers a ship. 
Those with this gift preside over the management of other members in the body. And then there's the gift of mercy. It's having compassion toward others who are in distress, showing sympathy. And I I see this gift uh, used in the church. Sensitivity coupled with a, a desire and the resources to lessen the suffering of other people in a kind and compassionate way, in a cheerful way. Every believer, every one of us has at least one spiritual gift. You ask, how can I discover my gift? Well, here's what I would encourage you to do. Take, first of all, take note of your desires. What do you desire? Did I, what, what was just mentioned? What, where, where do your desires lie? The second thing you can do is you can ask other people what they see in you. If someone comes up to you and they say, you know what? I've been watching you, and man, you really have a heart for serving. Thank you for that. Well, that, there's some feedback. That's telling you something, right? So, so ask others what they see in you. If you're married, ask your spouse what they see in you. Ask those that, that you serve with what they see in you of these gifts. The other thing I would mention is just try out various things. Try out various opportunities as, as opportunities arise. And then the last thing I would say is, look, just... Begin, if you have the gift of teaching, you don't have to wait for an opportunity to come up up here and teach. You can find a brother, and you can sit down in a coffee shop, and you can just start, hey, let's let's study the Word of God together, right? Uh, Whatever your gift is, you don't have to wait on someone to come up and ask you to exercise your gift. Begin exercising your gift. Do it where you can, as you can, and allow God to grow, th- to, to grow that. And so once we know our gift, Paul says to Timothy, we're to stir up that gift. And I believe this. Every Christian is equipped to serve God and to fail to exercise the gift that God has given us. It leaves the body handicapped at best. The body of Christ is to operate like this. Ever been to a a symphony? How many of you have been to one? We used to enjoy, um, we would listen to the Boston Pops Symphony when we lived up in the Northeast. They would be on the radio. You used to listen to that. Um, It'd be on the radio. I used to love, like, around the holidays, they'd always have, like, Christmas specials. Around the 4th, they'd always have patriotic-type things, but if you've been to a, to a symphony, you know that a symphony is not a solo. It's not a solo. Our individual performances are part of something bigger when we talk about the body of Christ. In the grander scheme of things, we aren't here to sing our own song. We're part of a body that in some ways is like this symphony orchestra just as a human body is like an orchestra individual members working together collaboratively collectively for a purpose that's greater than themselves this is what we are doing as the body of christ and in the wisdom of god the members of the body of christ are also designated to resonate and to move with one another you you watch a, a, a symphony orchestra, right? And right, all the violins, man, they are just, it, you watch all the, the bows just up and down, right? I mean, they are, they're all moving together in perfect harmony. 
And there's this resonance that, that takes place, and there's emotions that go up, you know, throughout it. They, they build up, you know, the emotions build up, and then they kind of let out. And I, I see the wisdom of God in all of that. You know, when one person hurts, what are we supposed to do as the body of Christ? We're all supposed to come around that brother, right? When one is rejoicing, what are we to do? The, the, the symphony is the, 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 the music, right? It, it, it reaches that peak. We're all to come around that brother and rejoice with that brother. This is how the body of Christ is meant to operate. And so when the people of Christ care for one another, when we do this, we move like the rising and falling of emotions in the, in the symphony. So what are we to do? We're to work together. We're to complement one another, not to compete with one another. It's not what they do in the, in the symphony. They complement one another. Of course, there's that guy standing out there in the front, the director. What would the, the orchestra be without the members of the orchestra uh, following the lead of their director, right? They'd all be playing their own song. They'd all be going off on their, uh, you know, on, maybe on a different page, playing their own tune. Well, church, what I want us to understand is that we have a conductor. It's not Pastor Dave. It's Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus is the conductor of the orchestra. He is the one who leads us as a body. He's the one who can turn our individual contributions. He, he's the one who can take all of these instruments, that, uh, these gifts, the, the things that he's put in our hands, and he's the one who can orchestrate us and direct us to make beautiful music for him, to glorify him. I'm, again, I'm not talking about literal music, though I guess it could be. I'm talking about doing the work of the ministry, doing the work of the church. When we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our conductor, man, we we can do what only God can do through the church. In a beautiful, God-honoring kind of a way, and so we, we must think collaboratively. And as we follow Jesus together, using this instrument that he's put in our own hand, when we use this instrument in concert with one another, complementing one another, he leads us as one body to bring glory to his name. What's that mean? It means we're better together. So let me give you some next, next steps and we're done. Remember, our identity is not simply about us. If we think of ourselves individually, we're missing a key aspect of our identity in Christ. And so if we're going to think right about who we are, we have to understand who God has made us, that he's made us part of something bigger than ourselves, and that is the body of Christ. So what's our next steps? Two of them. Number one, I will think sensibly not overestimating, not underestimating about my part in the body, believing we are better together. Would you do that? Is this the next step that you need to take, that you will just begin thinking sensibly, carefully about yourself? I'm afraid that oftentimes where we really think wrong is we underestimate ourselves. We just don't think 
that we can really be a part in a meaningful way of what God has gifted us to do. And we're wrong. So can I encourage you to think sensibly about this? Would you ask God, would you do that? Maybe, maybe just right at this moment, you just need to bow your head and say, God, help me. I've been underestimating, and I recognize that you've gifted me. Would you help me to understand this? Would you help me to operate in a way that uses this gift? And that leads to the second next step, and it's simply this. I will discover the purpose and function God intends for me within the body and use my gifting for the good of the other members working together to complement, not compete, with the other members. Will you discover your purpose, your function, and then will you use it in the body, with the body, for the good of the body, so that the body of Christ can operate healthily and do the work that God has called us to do.